The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Rena Shah, who uh, I've never actually met, stopped in on one of the spaces, asked a really good question. I looked at her timeline. I figured, you know what? Let's have Rena in as well. As well. So, Rena, for the uh, audience here, introduce your, yourself. Who are you? Uh, what's your background? How'd you get interested in Capitol Hill? And what are you doing today? Hey, Michael, thanks for your really kind words. I mean, I I like to think I'm an interesting person, like most of Washington, D.C. does. But, uh, you know, it's not too often I get to hear that. Uh, I do have an interesting background, I like to think. In in terms of my trajectory here in D.C., I've been here about almost 20 years, which uh, I think makes me a native at some point. But I'm originally from southern West Virginia, born and raised in the southern coal fields. And, you know, not to date myself, but born in the early 80s. And so I'm a millennial. and I don't meet many millennials who are on the Republican side of things, as I've found myself at this point in my life. Um, been working for Republicans since 2007, and uh, it's been an interesting time to be in Washington as the party has taken a different direction. Uh, if you read my quick bio, you see that I'm a political strategist as well as an on-air analyst. I appear each week at MSNBC, CNN, PBS, and internationally at BBC, as well as Al Jazeera. So right now I'm a free agent, kind of showing up wherever anybody will have me, uh, offering whatever I can about the sort of big issues of the day, as we know, so, so many of them. But um, yeah, quick tidbit of, on a, a little bit more of my background. I'm very interested in the issues of the day because I've actually been a speechwriter for Republican candidates who have run at all levels of government. So uh, Congress to even local school board. How I got into all this was actually during college, I took a side job writing for my conservative paper on campus. And I didn't realize they were the alternate to the cat campus daily. So uh, not knowing that the campus daily was liberal, I took on a job as a copy editor and then I rose through the ranks and, and became an assistant managing editor. So my, my love for writing, reading, all of that kind of goes back to my college days. And writing for Republican candidates has been a lot of fun because truly it's, 
it's evolved. Uh, I went from being somebody that was, you know, drafting talking points on everything from economy to sort of social issues, a real partner in writing for some of these men and women that have run from California to South Carolina, Florida to Maine. It's been a really interesting ride for me since I started my own political shop in 2011. I've kept it open, but in 2016, I did a pretty big thing and I spoke out against uh, the 45th president of the United States back when he was only the Republican nominee for the convention that summer. So in 2016, I basically blew up my career. Many of Republican no longer wanted to work with me after I became the poster girl of the Never Trump movement. Instead of running to the limelight, I ran from it. And I wasn't on Twitter for about three years, actually. I decided that it was uh, not an environment I wanted to be in. And during that time, I ended up having a couple more kids. And so I'm a mom of three. I'm living in the DC area, as I alluded to earlier. And uh, nowadays, I do a lot more geopolitical risk advisory. Uh, So for CEOs sitting in Germany and Morocco, uh, as well as in Japan and India. Still doing a little bit of political advisory stuff here and there domestically, but my my real passion is to try to break down the complexities of Washington for those who aren't in Washington and want to understand a little bit better, whether just on a personal level or for their business. But yeah, that's the long and short of it. Um, happy to take any questions on that, but I'll let you lead the way, Michael. Thanks so much for having me here. It was really good to meet you in that space. What was that a few weeks ago now? Um, I, I occasionally jump into some fun ones that aren't just politics, uh, but I have a real love for business because I come from a business family too. And my husband and I also, we have a pretty good portfolio, I'd like to think, uh, when it comes to real estate as well as to uh, crypto. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. So what I, what I find interesting is that, you know, I think most people will associate the idea of cancel culture with liberals and cancel culture or the idea of cancel culture can be in the the uh, conservative side too. talk about how that how that felt. And, and if you were surprised by the pushback you got in 2016, because I find it hard to believe, although maybe this is my own naivete when it comes to politicians, that there aren't rational people. So people in groups tend to be irrational, but one-on-one they tend to be more rational. It it sounds to me like the group really went after you uh, as being never Trump, so to speak. But on in one on one conversations, were they a little bit more reasonable in the way that they would speak with you and, and interact with yeah, you? Yeah, I love that right out of the gate you can recognize that. It's the cancel culture isn't just on the left. And and that's really the oxymoronic attitude that that this party has nowadays, the Republican Party. It's a sense that no, no, we we don't do what the left does. Well, I see having made my career throughout this this past two decades. I can say very firmly, things have really flipped on its head. You know, it used to be that fear and alarmism was something that conservative war- conservatives warned about. They said, no, liberals are driving you to the ballot box with fear. They're, they're causing you to be an alarmist. You need to not be that. And now I see the party engaging in that very same thing. So when it happened to me, it was astounding, I think, um, on, on, um, on a level for many in Washington, because that's just not how we operated. There was a sense that you could have this, you know, you could express yourself. We, you know, we're, we're constitution thumpers, Republicans in general. We're people that always point to the First Amendment and say, you need to do, you protect that first. And, and I'm not saying people on the left don't do that, but here I was exercising my First Amendment right 
this was early spring of 2016. And, and Trump was just the presumptive nominee at that point. And so for all the non-politicos here, what's that mean? It means that he was doing well in those early primaries and he was beating out a really crowded field. And, and just as an aside, I've been on air this whole past week saying, I think the worst thing the Republicans can do right now is have another crowded field up against Trump. So I'm talking like bringing out people like governors, like Glenn Youngkin to, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo, who was part of the Trump administration. It would be horrible for all these people to jump out and build what there was in 2016, another crowded field through which the most extreme person kind of wins the day. Well, that's what had happened in 2016 when I went on Fox News and I thought I was on for a very like milquetoast segment, just talking about how Trump should respect the rules, not fight with the head of the RNC. And at that point, the establishment Republicans in D.C., of which I was very much a part of, I was on my local D.C. Republican Party's executive committee. I'd been a foot soldier. And again, I'm still under 40. So I was pretty young when this happened six years ago. And when I did it, I thought, surely my party will will come to my aid because nobody was in the tank for Trump. I was a Rubio delegate when I did this. So I, I actually ran in a local election to be elected as a delegate to the convention that summer. And I ran uh, a, a, on a slate for Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, because he was still in the in in the field for the nomination that summer. So, you know, a number of us were like, no, Trump, he's not serious. How could it be? He, this guy's a, a joke. You know, we were making comments like Lindsey Graham, like this guy will mean the, you know, he's, he's going to mean the end of the Republican party essentially. And, and when I, when I basically just said I was concerned about him getting the nomination, the anchor on Fox, Gretchen Carlson was her name. And many of you must know her because she was part of the whole Ailes debacle over at Fox news media. The, the, the funny part was she, she threw me a question I wasn't ready for. She said, well, I read somewhere and I'd given an interview in, in print the week before saying that if Donald Trump is your party's nominee, you would vote for Hillary Clinton. And I was really shocked. And I said, well, actually, yeah, I'd have to consider consider Hillary Clinton. And when I did that, Michael, immediately, I turned on my phone after that interview, the far right wing had come after me. Breitbart Media came after me. And people say, well, how did they, they come to get you? I was probably the first victim of a political witch hunt in that entire GOP primary process that year, which is so kind of rich because Donald Trump screamed witch hunt all year long and, and for years after, of course. But I... I immediately found myself the subject of national and international attention because people then realized that th there could be a movement on the floor of the convention that summer to prohibit Trump from becoming the nominee. That was something that hadn't happened in decades. And so when I did that as the first elected delegate to speak out against Trump, I didn't know what I was putting on the line. My career, my family's safety, I got death threats. People were telling me to go back to where I came from and to which I was like, what, West Virginia? And I was essentially being told that me exercising my First Amendment right was not okay. Uh, my local party decided to investigate properties that I owned in Virginia and other parts of the country trying to say that I was not a resident of the District of Columbia. So therefore, I couldn't be a delegate going to the convention that summer representing the district, which I had been democratically elected to do. Long story short, this was a crazy scenario that never really got anywhere past the convention, because of course, the convention came and went that summer and Trump became the nominee. But we tried it. We had a movement called Free the Delegates. We had another group called Hamilton Electors. We all tried to deny Donald Trump uh, the nomination that summer on the floor. And it didn't work. But, um, you know, there's something to be said about trying it and standing up to people 
And I'll tell you, I never felt better than when I did, uh, when I saw Paul Manafort in handcuffs uh, <laughs> years later, because Paul Manafort was the one who, who really sent the right wing after me and didn't want me at the convention that summer. Is there anything that you... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Regret looking back at that? time i mean look you have principles presumably you're not gonna walk back you know the idea or what you said and what you did afterwards but i'm just curious looking back is there anything that you would have maybe done differently or handled in a different way i think i i actually would have chased the limelight um i saw what happened years later when people started to you know leave trump leave trump world uh those were the people that were getting the attention and and they 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 grabbed the mantle and and their voices and their messages were were kind of long-lasting I like to think I did what a normal person would do, which was, again, sort of say, I need to protect my family uh, and, and not do this. Uh, but I, it was already done. The damage was done. I had clients that were Republicans sitting in Congress who no longer wanted to be affiliated with me. And to that, I, you know, I put on my lawyer hat and said, look, let's just sign non-disclosure agreements across the board. So I have those to this day. Six years later, that's how I do my business. And that's how I'm able to go on air anywhere, um, it, you know, domestically and internationally. I've been able to develop a career as a political analyst on air, uh, have my voice heard through commentary, as well as just sharing the story like you allowed me to do so graciously just now. Uh, but a part of me feels like had I started earlier, I could really have uh, exploited the power of that crisis that happened in my life for good. I could have got people to understand that, look, if they could do it to me, they could do it to you. And everything we saw come true in the years that followed that my my peers and I, which we were very few, very small group of never Trumpers, right? Like the never Trumpers today, we make up about 10% of the GOP. It's been estimated. And and truly, we'd like to think we're bigger than that. And probably actually after last week, we we are bigger than that. How much bigger, we don't know quite yet. But the reality is that, you know, we were warning, we were sounding the alarm. We were, we were the canaries in the coal mine. And, you know, I think by, by fading away and leaving, I, I think I wasn't able to really show people what's possible in this country. I mean, the biggest reason I stood up to Donald Trump is because on my dad's side, we come from Uganda and we lost everything due to the dictator Idi Amin. My dad had to start all over. He was the only son amongst eight, eight children and they had to abandon three generations of wealth that they had built as Indians ancestrally from the country of India who'd gone to Uganda and been business people, had been merchants. And uh, we lost everything because Idi Amin kicked us out. He didn't like that we were prosperous. He didn't like the color of our skin. And uh, because of that, my dad in, in North Carolina in the 1970s had to take on a great economic responsibility of providing for his sisters, many of which were unmarried, seven of them, like I said, and, and his parents. And so coming to America and starting over with like 80 bucks in your pocket and then building greatness, I mean, I think it only happens here. And maybe that's why I'm so... Uh, obsessed with um, America as a concept and idea because I know it's this really beautiful experiment where people can really change their 
their lives overnight uh, with with just their hard work and merit. But I also know that dictators can ruin everything in the way in which Trump was talking. And look, I, I mingle regularly with people who voted for Trump often twice, 2016, 2020. I have people who still like him to this day. And I think that's that's also a beauty, beautiful thing in our country is that we can be respected. I mean, those same people say, we understand you did what you did in 2016, uh, but they're still willing to break bread with me. And I think it's out there, but sometimes we we forget that. And so, um, yeah, very few regrets, but but definitely some about maybe just not really taking my story and writing the book. Maybe I could still write it. I don't know. All right, since you since you alluded to last week, let let's touch on on this because I think earlier middle of the year, most people certainly probably within the fit and twit side of of this app uh, would have firmly said Republicans will will take away both the House and the Senate because inflation, it probably gets blamed on Biden and on Democrats, rightly or wrongly, that becomes the perception because people have recency bias, right? And they assume that whoever's in power is, uh, that's the reason for why they're going through what they're going through. Roe v. Wade uh, overturn comes out, obviously that that was a game changer. I want to hear your thoughts on how the tide turned um, and made it much harder for Republicans to uh, take it all, so to speak. Yeah, there's so much to unpack with that, Michael, right? Like if you're somebody that's even watched for a few moments, kind of how everything's gone down in the aftermath of, of these midterms, you, you've noticed a couple of things. You've noticed that likely it was Gen Z that delivered this these midterms, as well as American women. And I'm talking about women who are of, you know, reproductive age. We've got some, what, over 40 million women of reproductive age throughout the United States. And, and of those, about almost 60% live in states that are hostile to abortion. So what I saw happening in the aftermath of the overturn of Roe at the Supreme Court is Republicans just saying, no, 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 this is how we're going to message this. We're saying that it's not a big deal. This is just kicking the issue back to the states. Now, like I said, the inconvenient truth is that most American women live in states that are hostile to abortion. What does that do for them? I mean, especially in this era when we're talking about in vitro fertilization, ectopic pregnancy, abortion is a lot of things to a lot of people. And if you're an American woman that's been to a liberal arts college, if you were like me, raised in an anti-abortion household, you went to college, you, you met somebody that had likely been raped and had to seek out you know, termination services at, that they might not have had they not been raped. So the, the, these are some real scenarios in which we have to think about that, that the heaviness of the social issues this election. But, but you know, the, the conventional wisdom always leads us to believe that the economy has so, so much to do with it. I mean, there have been many months that I've criticized the Biden administration. And, and look, in the 2020 election, I started Republican Women for Biden. I, I believed in electing this guy. I crossed party lines to vote for Biden. I, I liked his chops. You know, I knew him when he was in Congress. I, I liked the guy in general. I feel like we needed um, a different taste. The country was ready for something new. I didn't care if it came in the form of a Democrat. I was willing to pay a little bit more in taxes. I know that sounds a little funny and foolish to say, um, but I also believe that you know the real pro-democracy thing to do is to be critical of, of your country's leaders. And I think the Biden administration kept printing money. And I've said it many a time. I, I think it was, uh, it was short-sighted. I, I, I think they handled... You know, the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think getting us out as a country and into the vaccine zone was was in part due to some of the successes of the Trump administration, not Trump himself. But I think also we have to be careful how we talk about 
voter attitudes on the economy versus social issues, because this year presented such a mixed bag. There was no way to see that it was going to be a red mirage. Everybody, and not just, I'm not just talking the punditry class here. Everybody was feeling like maybe there's something out there that will lead people to not do the right thing when it comes to the ballot box. Maybe people will vote with their pocketbooks and punish Democrats. So that talk of a red wave, yeah, that's that's all fine and well. But most of us saw that there was something heavy here and it was going to be in the hands of young voters and American women again to come and say, hey, Democrats, we're going to back you up here. You saw people under the age of 40 by some 15 points go and embrace Democrats. And so again, those younger voters, but older voters, people older than 45, went towards Republicans in a way we hadn't seen before. I think we were looking at something like five to 15 points, depending on which data set you're looking at. Um, that's, that's something that Democrats cannot ignore. They still have a problem on their hands on how the vast majority of the country is districted, uh, not in their favor. In Florida, for example, we all know that, how it's been drawn, those lines, electoral districts are to the advantage of Republicans there. But in general, Democrats have got to bring out this message of competence for the economy in a way that that comes up against Republicans and makes them look like they're ill-prepared and don't have a plan. Obviously, it's impossible to test, but I'm just curious. Do you think there was anything messaging-wise that Republicans at large could have done that would have made it more likely that voters would turn to their favor? Or was the, is the association automatically there with abortion Republicans, Roe v. Wade, that no matter of words or, or tone shift would, would have mattered? You know, look, Republicans nonetheless have now won enough seats to shift American policy. It's a narrow win. I personally think uh, the Republican Party would have been served better to actually have lost the House, <laughs> to lost control, uh, than to have such a narrow, narrow majority. Uh, on the domestic front, they've talked about unraveling the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill. And I, I don't want to call it a riot, because it wasn't just an everyday riot. Actually, I was nearby. And it was a full-on insurrection, man. I mean, this was some crazy stuff to witness. And I'm still not over it. <laughs> I know we're coming up on two years, but I'm just like, wow, that was crazy. So the fact that these men and women who are Republicans in Congress want to start their own inquiries into the 2020 election results, again, relitigate it. I, I think it's it's just going to trigger more standoff, uh, and 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 that standoff is going to be over. They're going to raise the the debt ceiling or not. The, these people find a way to directly draw the line from crazy to normal in like a moment. And 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 I'm talking about these people, meaning like the leadership of the House right now is not okay. And I'm saying this is somebody that's still registered Republican. I find Kevin McCarthy, the congressman from California, to be a really weak leader. As of right now, he doesn't have the votes to become speaker on the House floor. Uh, I think he still will become so. I mean, I, I don't think the far right Freedom Caucus or anybody else can really mount a challenge to McCarthy. He's really very much the establishment pick. But I don't like him as a leader because, like I said, he he's looking at this as as a way to sort of let's falsely deny Biden's victory and trigger a standoff on whether we're going to raise our country's debt ceiling or not. What what's that mean for any of us? I think when you look at this. On a um, on a global level, 
you know, American policy towards China, for example, like that's likely to harden. Is that a good thing or not? We're not even having a public debate about that anymore. Um, the commitment to supporting Ukraine, that's also probably going to soften. That stuff that they decided, uh, again, like the Biden victory in 2020, the, the softening support for Ukraine, basically just pulling aid in general. Um, those are the things that Republicans thought were winning messages going into last week's elections. And they just weren't, Michael. They made them fall flat on their faces in places they could have performed better in. So would they have been better to talk more about? um... We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Education. I mean, we know kids are not doing great writ large, coast to coast in the post-pandemic era. Public education is suffering. They were good to talk about crime, but did they have a sensible way of talking about crime and public safety? No, because we know that guns come into that. And and Republicans, again, are clinging to 2A, the Second Amendment there. Uh, And then thirdly, I think energy independence. They really could have gone in on that in a better way. And I I think that was another missed opportunity. So, and then fourthly, the big one, right? How do you talk about your plan to get the prices of things on the shelf down? We know that the Biden administration has definitely taken on efforts. I know there's been many a talk that you've hosted that's talked about the actions of the Fed, uh, what they've done all year long to try to cool the impact of this global inflation, as as the administration puts it. But I think the reality is this. 60% 60% of the American diet consists of prepared foods. I was shocked to learn that recently, but it's true. The price of prepared prepackaged foods that Americans consume, those prices are not down. So if you look at the vast majority of Americans going into the grocery store today, feeling like something's been done to alleviate the price at the register, it's not feeling right. So that was another missed opportunity. No real talk about how they would make it easier on the American pocketbook. Missed opportunities galore, Michael. Real missed opportunities. When we talk about Trump's tariffs, you know, I'm funny enough, like I, I don't consider myself a neoconservative, never have. Um, but I'll, I'll say this. There's definitely been more pain than gain from those Trump era's tariffs. I mean, that <laughs> there's no doubt about it. The U.S.-China trade war hurt us as a country. Uh, His tariffs, Trump's tariffs, did in fact hurt our own importers. I mean, when you, he he launched his trade war with China, what, I think in like early 2018. And and what he eventually did was impose tariffs on something like about 370 billion in imports. That's big industry right there, right? So so when we talk about the damage, uh, the impact on productivity, that was going to be a factor that held down our growth rates. Uh, You know, you're talking about that that increase on consumer costs. Also, when I talk about 350 billion or 370 billion, I pulled up the figure just a second ago, um, that amount of imports and exports being impacted, that that gets passed on to the consumer right away. That was something that Trump tried to deflect from big time. Uh, 
so I, I mean, for people who are interested in this, we we could go down the rabbit hole. I mean, uh, when I look at what the Trump administration did, they they had no care about the imposition of new taxes on us. That was something that we used to care about. Like no new taxes, right? What they did was impose something like 80 billion worth of new taxes on Americans by levying those tariffs on like thousands and thousands of products that we we use every day. So was there any success? No, he did nothing to boost the steel industry. Uh, either. That's something he, I remember he, he used to puff his chest out about all the time. Um, boost our American steel industry. Now, I grew up in West Virginia. I went to college in Morgantown, West Virginia, WVU, which is just south of Pittsburgh. So, you know, this, this, those new tariffs, I mean, when he talked about new tariffs, this wasn't a good thing, but the average American was like, yeah, okay, this sounds right. Those actually cause more pain for us in general. How do we come away from that? What have Democrats done to to sort of get us out of that zone? I, I don't I don't think the Biden administration has done much. Uh, we talk about, you know, shrinking the trade def- deficit, which is something, again, Republicans used to care about. I don't know. I don't know how Biden grapples with this in the next two years. There's no good answer. Uh, there's just so much misinformation out there amongst even um, the people that are that are at the table crafting this policy, whether on the left or on the right. I, and I'm talking about people I routinely keep in touch with on Capitol Hill. The good thing is, is, um, you know, Biden's willing his, his meeting with she. I mean, harbinger of cooperation, maybe uh, he didn't he didn't kill Trump's China tariffs on on imports there to some extent either. So economists really saw very little immediate gain for consumers when you talk about what Trump did. And, and, and that was just a great hypocrisy of it all because Trump made it seem like the consumer was somehow going to benefit from his administration's actions. And at the end of the day, what it was was just screwing us on every front. And then now we're in this whole new um, territory, right? Which we know we'd be in anyway, right? Where inflation is just the topic of the day. And so are we going to talk about soft on China stuff? Is Trump going to bring this back in now that he's announced? I don't really know, my friend. Uh, but I'll tell you this, we got to hang on the Reagan Republicans, because there will be, I think, coming in the new Congress, some, I see a window for some talk to to resume some degree of normalcy. But uh, I, I don't know, it was just a damn shame to watch Trump's trade war, man. It was, it was nothing like what the experts were trying to make us think it was. And and there were even people at Cato Institute who disappointed me. And that's saying a lot for me. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you this. Uh, there's a lack of self-awareness on Capitol Hill, full on. When I talk about uh, Reagan Republicans, it, you know, I, I definitely still hear bits of that. Um, I'm, I've been writing for a couple of Southern Republicans on, on some of their their ideas that they want to hopefully bring into the new Congress. Uh, we've been working on some drafts for committees. I, I'm definitely dealing with a member right now who will be on ways and means in the new Congress for sure. Uh, and, and look, you know, this is, this is the reality here is that self-awareness is missing because when we talk about Reaganomics, you've got to be willing to acknowledge what was wrong and right. But that's just not the way our men and women on the right who are elected right now are, are doing things on the Hill because when they open their mouths, then they get accused of being Democrats, right? I mean, I've heard some of them be complimentary of, of the Biden administration's adopting new export controls. You, you know, when we talk about the battles that we have in front of us, I mean, 
let's just be real here. Cutting off China has to be a priority and it can't be rooted in one party or the other. So, you know, when we talk about even the grittiest, like semiconductor manufacturing exports to China, right? Like talking that stuff, these Republicans are afraid to open their mouths sometimes because they, again, get accused of being with the left on things. That's what, that's a problem with this moment, you guys, is that things are so hyper-partisan and out of control up on the Hill right now because of the most extreme members like Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, who doesn't know her, her mouth from her backside some days. And these people have no interest. They have no interest in all in these discussions. They just want to villainize their colleagues that are trying to figure out the middle ground, like how to lead the way uh, until we figure these things out. Like you said, U.S. Uh, worker productivity is going to suffer. And we can't talk about goods anymore, like things like washing machines, solar panels. They were like in the media there to, to talk about, you know, these injured U.S. industries there for a while. But then it was like a flash in the pan and everybody forgot. So, look, there's some good things that the Biden administration has done. But in general, I, I'm definitely seeing more failures than, than successes. I, I want to kind of say, let's hurry up and wait to see what some of these Republicans do in some of these uh, influential committees of the new Congress. You know, it's, it's a nice thing to feel vindicated after all these years. I mean, there were multiple points, right, over the past six years. But, but the thing is, our system... And I, I mentioned what happened to me in 2016 because most people don't know that this is how our system works. We've got, you know, we like to think we have a multi-party system. We don't. We have a two-party system. And I know you didn't ask this question, but I get it daily. You know, why are you still Republican? I mean, look, I believe in reform. I started my career with this party. I, I'm, I'm not the... I didn't become a Republican because of my religion. I'm actually, for, for many of you who might know the major world religions, I belong to a very small religion. It's called Jainism. And so... Here I was, not an evangelical Christian, and my parents weren't Republicans either. I grew up in West Virginia at a time where the state was pretty purple. 80s, we, we voted blue statewide, and we voted red presidential, purple state. So, you know, this is, there was a sense that why, why do you need to be a Republican? Well, I think if we have two parties and one seems less healthy than the other, what good is it going to be as somebody that made my career in this party to leave it and point from the other side? Might as well stick around and try to reform what I think needs to change. But I'm, I'm still a fiscal conservative above it all. And, and like I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm, I'm a mom now to, to three kids. I actually just had a baby six months ago. So I'm thinking about this like more than anyone else these days. I'm like, what is a country going to be like when this little one is in high school, right? Um, the baby formula shortage really really threw me into a tizzy uh, when I got home from the hospital in April after delivery. I was like, wow, supply, supply chain issues and all kinds of other issues uh, front of mind. I really came down hard on the Biden administration at that time and said, you need to learn how to walk and chew gum because they definitely could have seen that crisis coming. In fact, they knew about it and chose to, to not do anything. Uh, but again, I'm a Republican because I don't believe the government solves all my problems, right? That, that, there's that too. So to answer your question about the system, right? Why do we have this system? And, and could an independent ever kind of come through this system when you've got people like me who have to pick a side? And so I say to that, what I did in 2016 after the convention was over, the Republican nominating convention through which Donald Trump became the nominee for the party, I went and I joined an independent campaign. I joined a guy named Evan McMullen. I became one of his top advisors in his inner circle, and I was his chief spokeswoman. His name was Evan McMullen. And again, he was on the ballot. Uh, we were not in that many states and, and I believe 17 states. I think I'm wrong on that one. Actually, guys, I've 
mom brain right now. But the point is, we we launched a very short campaign that August of 2016. So it was like a sprint to that election day to see if we can deny Trump uh, the White House by peeling off electoral college votes of his from the Western states, primarily in Utah, where Evan was a uh, was from and, and, and is a Mormon. And Mormons, as we know, uh, love Mitt Romney, but they also love Mike Lee, the other senator from Utah, who was able to defeat Evan last week when Evan ran against him this time uh, in the Senate campaign. Mike Lee emerged uh, victorious with 53% of the vote. Evan got 42% of the vote as an unaffiliated uh, independent candidate. Uh, the reason he was even able to do this well this time, whereas in 2016 when he ran for president was a total bloodbath, and different story, he was running for president back then. But again, he ran for Senate this time. The Democrats chose to back him. Utah Democrats chose not to put uh, a candidate up, and they they decided to back Evan McMullen, and they thought that was going to be the right move Um Obviously, it wasn't. Uh, it ultimately, it wasn't even close. He he won by Senator Lee won re-election by double digits. So the debate is there. Was that strategy by the Democrats a blueprint of sorts to make Republicans campaign hard, compete for moderates, and expend resources in future races? That that's the the sort of lingering question now. I think one thing I see nationally is the Democrat bench of candidates is getting stronger, while the Republican bench is getting weaker. And with Trump's announcement to run in twenty twenty four. You got to wonder, is the guy going to just blow up the bench? It seems like he did by getting his most by getting his candidates on the ballots through the primaries last week. Right. And into the general. Uh, And those and and a large number of them didn't win, as we know. Sixty percent of Americans had an election denier on the ballot this year. I think that's pretty crazy. So there's a sense that, yes, we need more independently minded candidates. We need candidates that are willing to run as independents and then caucus with whomever they want or maybe not caucus with anybody at all. That's not a possibility right now, by the way. Um, We need those kind of people running. But how do those people win? That's a real big question. We have a problem because of how our system's set up. Uh, You know, people are really feeling like government's not serving them. They're not wrong. There was a Princeton University study, uh, you know, and that's pretty pretty reliable if you ask me. Public opinion has near zero impact on U.S. law, okay? Nearly every issue we face as a nation is caught in the grip of corruption. It's just fact. What we see is billions spent on influencing our government and U.S. consumers are giving trillions in return. So, you know, what we really have is a system that isn't serving us well. We've got a big decision by our Supreme Court, Citizens United, basically says corporations are people too. So the influence of big money, electoral districts drawn in the favor of one party, not by nonpartisan commissions. I think only 21 states have nonpartisan uh, redistricting commissions. That's a big problem. That means you've got partisan people drawing them any which way you want. So that's called gerrymandering, right? And then you've got, like I said, big money. And then we've got these winner-take-all systems. So what I one big systems reform that I love as a conservative, and I know a lot of other conservatives like it too, it's called ranked choice voting. Uh, I know we don't have enough time tonight to get into that, but look into that. That's a serious, good reform that's actually palatable across the political spectrum. We need certain things to change for the system to serve us better. But until people sort of wake up to the hows and the whys and the whats, it just isn't possible, my friend. Actually, the vast majority of my extended family lives in the UK because when we were kicked out of Uganda, 
the UK took us as political refugees. Really brilliant documentary put out by the BBC called um, Ugandan Asians. So anybody interested in kind of like my family story of being kicked out by a dictator, that that documentary is brilliant. And and we really pride ourselves. I mean, ancestrally we're Indians, but pride ourselves on on being an educated people that were you know kicked out of a country by no fault of our own, and then went to the United Kingdom, which took us in as refugees and and. I have uncles that were pharmacists or engineers that became shopkeepers and and to this day have retired as such and, and built beautiful families doing that. Uh, so I think a lot about what's happening over on your side of the pond. And, and because I appear at the BBC a lot, I get to talk about it. But I think of Boris Johnson's words as he was leaving and when he spoke to Parliament, he said, stay close to the Americans. And it's like, I kind of get goosebumps when I think of like, those were some of his parting words to his successor. What does that even mean anymore? Why stay close to us? What What is allyship about at this point? And we've got all these things happening in the world, right? Like people, most people don't even understand why, uh, you know, what's happening in Ukraine and why why the invasion by Russia matters. They don't understand, you know, grain exports and, and any of what was hitting us on our shores being related to that event. Uh, we have a sincere, um, we have a serious problem. We have... Uh, politicians who are less sincere, obsessed with power, of course, we all know that, right? Uh, but we've got such high levels of civic illiteracy. I mean, I, I talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert is about to, well, actually, she's just won her race because her opponent, the Democrat, conceded. I mean, we've got these two women who are Republicans who make me ashamed to put a Republican next to my name anywhere I go. These people don't care about uh, sitting next to American CEOs and understanding them. They know the name Jamie Dimon, but did they give a damn about who he is? Not at all, until it comes time to maybe try to get some sort of pack check. The reality is, look, we have people like Howard Schultz, the Starbucks CEO who stood up and, and failed miserably on trying to run for president, right? But then I think of guys like Mark Cuban, who are actually like likable and, and have a number of successes in the private sector. And I'm like, how come these people don't want to come into the fold? What, what good is it for people who are good to try to come into public service anymore? Uh, they, they have understandable, I'm sorry, they have a deeper understanding of how the economy works. They have solutions on the ready that they're willing to tweet out here and there. But the general public, do we have an appetite for these people? I think we do, but the system, the system set up for these people to fail. So my friend Ray Dalio posted on LinkedIn the other day, and he started his post with a sentence that I just love so much. And it's that democracy is an amazing and beautiful thing to watch when it works well. And I think a lot about democracy these days. Uh, I'm on the board of Renew Democracy Initiative. For those of you unfamiliar, please check it out. Started by uh, former world chess champ, Gary Kasparov, who I'm privileged and honored to now call a friend. Um, who, by the way, I had on a Twitter space before also on a side note, but yes. Love that. Of course you did, Michael, because you're a boss <laughs> and you know other bosses. So, you know, look, this is this is the reality is that people have to stick together with our values, right? Like our, our voice, is really our voice in the public sphere is what our values are. And, and that's what you're bringing day in and day out. It, it's, it's not just about casting your, your ballot and, and, and expressing your, your concerns with that one vote, though it is important. We have to talk about how we feel about democracy moving forward. That's just super important, I think, uh, especially with the 18 to 29-year-old set. It's, it's even more important, as we saw after last week. I mean, I think in general, the younger generations are, are less radical than our elders think we are. Um, but our patience with democracy is, is really close to running out unless we see our, our elders 
ready to meet the challenges of the day and help us solve them. Like, you know, inequality, climate change. These are, these are big things we think about. When I had the great privilege of uh, traveling the country over many years as a Republican operative, I would meet with younger Republicans who were like, yeah, Rena, come on, you're with us on this. We want to see Citizens United overturned in our lifetime. We want to see, um, you know, this Republican Party not be the party that just continues to give billionaires tax cuts. Like, if something feels unfair, something feels wrong in the water. And I think you're all probably acquainted with that study that came out um, about five years ago about how millennials are basically turned off to democracy, about how more than two thirds of American millennials, and this was like what, 2016, more than two thirds of American millennials did not consider it essential to live in a country that is governed democratically. That's a problem. So when we talk about making the system better, uh, and, 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 and essentially operating under these conditions, we got to look at younger leaders. And I'm not trying to be ageist here. I'm saying millennial leaders and Gen Z leaders can change America. But when you've got people at the top who are unwilling to pass on the torch, thank God Nancy has said she's going to do it now. But you've got people like Chuck Grassley on the Republican side, a senator, who's who just ran again and won again. So so there's a, there's a disillusionment about how our democracy, our representative democracy functions here. And many an expert will tell you we have a constitutional republic as well. We're, we're a country that's rife with problems. One of our biggest problems is that young people are not feeling like their futures are going to change. We no longer get, nor do we want, what our parents got, which was that two-floor uh, home, two-car garage, that white picket fence. You know, I'm like I said, again, a millennial that is, is you know, I have a great number of peers who are not able to buy homes. They are renting. They have always rented. Then I look at Gen Z. These guys are doing multiple gigs that forget even owning a home. They're having trouble making rent. Um, so, so the economy, the way we work, the way we live, everything is changing. And it feels like our politicians aren't wise with it. They're not up to the task of fixing it. And I think the only answer I can give you is getting people across the political spectrum on board with some of these systems reforms that are palatable like ranked choice voting. Because if we stop with this winner-takes-all system, we'll see less mudslinging, we'll see less costly and more efficient elections. And that means we get more people to the polls. That means more people will show up and understand. But until then, you've got people who show up because they're scared and they're fearful of what's changing. And that's, like I tweeted, uh, an agenda that seems to work, but it won't work forever. So we're, we're at a moment where I think I, I want to see uh, unique, different leaders show up. And, uh, and I'll wrap this into sort of this final thought because I've promised Michael some gossip. Um, maybe it's a time for a guy like a Senator Tim Scott, the black senator who's a Republican from South Carolina. Maybe it's time for him to become the Republican nominee in 2024. And the Republican Party can coalesce around him. Co- you know, and what, what happened is essentially that Trump went to South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster and, and, and sold himself. And so McMaster, the governor of South Carolina, um, you know, basically got Trump, uh, gave Trump his endorsement. And he's like, this is my guy. And, and Trump 2024, he's not remembering that Nikki Haley's a former governor of South Carolina. Tim Scott's your current sitting senator from South Carolina. These are two unique, different looking people, non-white. Um, yes, both Christian. Um, but, but again, that diversity piece, you know, younger, uh, serious chops having been made, serving at different levels. These people could be, um, 
somebody that could show the Democrats a serious upset in 2024. But until Republicans choose to stand behind these kind of people, it's not possible. It is rumored, though, again, my piece of gossip, that, that Tim Scott has something like $30 million in the bank. What's he going to do with that? Mount a presidential bid, perhaps? I, I don't think it would be ill-advised. And Rena, any uh, any final thoughts here other than the uh, the gossip part? Any, any final thoughts? <laughs> no more gossip. That's all I got. Um, I I think this was a really fun thing to do with you guys tonight, and and I will ha- I will be happy to come and learn here. I, I, the only final parting note I have is is why I, I, I rock with Gary Kasparov and the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm I'm concerned. Um, I'm worried about the direction in which we're going, uh, but I'm also, I could never have worked in politics for as long as I have if I weren't a forever optimist. Um, my, my, my philosophy for, taken from Jainism, again, the religion of which I'm a, a follower, uh, it's live and let live. And I, I think it, I want to be, you know, uh, somebody that makes a, a real positive impact in the lives of others through doing this work. Um, the day I find out that I'm no longer doing that, I won't do it anymore. But please, guys, look into Renew Democracy Initiative. We are um, working towards that, you know, helping people understand why uh, it's important on, on our shores and, and why we need to pay attention at what's happening around the world, because democracy is uh, in, in turmoil. It's in danger. And, um, and as you heard from my background, uh, I am bringing you 100% of myself because I'm somebody that cares and I would love to come back and learn from some of you. And please, please DM me if there's ever anything I can do to help any of you out. Insights, uh, friendship, or anyways, gossip or otherwise. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank- yeah, no, thank you very much for joining. I'll do another space on Sunday and uh, enjoy the rest of your evenings. Thank you, Rena. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.